ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene. He kona i purangi tene e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Here with me today, we have plant pro Kelly Frogley. Hello, Kelly. Kia ora, Erica. Ko Kelly Frogley, tōku ingoa, no ōtatahi ahou. He kaimahi ahou mō te papa atawhai. Hey, Erica. My name is Kelly Frogley, and I'm living in Christchurch. And I work for the Department of Conservation. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, So tell me a bit about what your role is at DOC. I'm one of many botanists that work for the Department of Conservation, but I'm the only one that specialises in a small group of plants called non-vascular plants. And this group includes the little guys like mosses, lichens, liverworts and hornworts. And essentially, my role is to identify all of the non-vascular plants that are collected from plots all throughout New Zealand as part of a monitoring program that we carry out. So tell me about how you got started in this field. It was really by luck and good timing. So I was a student at Otago University, and this was at a time when a lot of the field components of degrees were being cut. And so I had a couple of professors who were really encouraging of me getting out there in my own time and doing botanical work. Um, And one of these projects that I ended up doing was a botanical survey of a bog in the Catlins. And this included vascular and non-vascular plants. So just to clarify for everyone, what's a non-vascular plant? So a non-vascular plant is a plant that doesn't have vascular structures, which are specialised structures inside the plant that transport nutrients and water throughout the whole plant. Non-vascular plants don't have those structures. So they rely on um, absorbing the nutrients and water through the cell surface. Okay, so like the tubes, is that another way of describing it? Vasculars have the Yeah, the vascular bundles that form tubes that transport, kind of like veins and blood in, the veins in the a tree. human body. Sure. Yeah, of a Okay, <laughs> cool. So you you had, um, you had went a bit into non-vascular and vascular. So then... Yes. Uh, so then um, the Department of Conservation were... They had this monitoring program throughout the country, monitoring uh, biodiversity. And my manager at the time was really passionate about non-vascular plants and thought that these shouldn't be excluded from monitoring programs as traditionally they have been. And so she really fought to include them in the program and asked my lecturer, had he any students who had shown an interest in non-vascular plants? He put forward my name and then I got hired straight out of uni. And so I've just been on the job learning ever since. That is great timing, isn't it? Perfect timing. Fantastic. So you've talked a bit about a non-vascular plant. So why are they important? Non-vascular plants are hugely diverse. They play a really important role in our ecosystem in so many ways. Uh, They are the first to colonise an area, a new disturbed site. Uh, They can modify the soil conditions, regulate pH levels, stabilise the soil and make it habitable for other plants to then grow. 
They also act as habitat for other insects. Um, it's really cool sometimes when I'm looking down the microscope and then I can see all these creepy crawlies moving around. Um, I identified one once and it turned out I had no idea about any insects, but I sort of followed some keys that I found online and it turned out to be called a moss bug. So there you go. I didn't that know exists. they existed, but it made total sense. <laughs> That's so cool. So they're kind of like the building blocks of, Indeed. of the ecosystem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So can you give us an example of a non-vascular plant that we might see in our backyard that people might be able to recognise? Yeah, there's actually so many. Like just for in my backyard, I've got these old peach trees growing down the back and they are covered in lichens, all different colours, different shapes, different textures. Uh, and then if I look down at the grass, in probably the damper areas of the grass, I can see all these mosses growing. They look little fluffy green things, mm-hmm. little leaves. And then a lot of people in their garden will have what's called a thallus liverwort. And it looks like a green mat and it, and it can cover really big areas of your garden. A lot of people don't like it and they want to get rid of it. <laughs> I mean, you've seen this spray and I... walk away, eh? <laughs> oh, no, is that what they're referencing? <laughs> Moss mold oh. and lichen. Oh, spray no. <laughs> don't buy them. <laughs> um, so speaking of moss, I've heard that moss can be so important as like a sponge in an ecosystem. Is that right? Yes. So mosses can, and liverworts and lichens, they can all retain huge amounts of water. Um, mosses in particular have cells that can hold huge amounts of water. Say, for example, sphagnum moss can hold up to 20 times its weight in water. And then through periods of dryness, uh, they can release that water as it's needed. So they're sort of modifying the humidity levels around them. Right. And then and then if animals browse them and something like that, can that sort of deteriorate a forest like that? Uh, they can withstand quite a lot okay. of uh, disturbance. Mm-hmm. But say if it was on a walking track and people were walking across it, animals were walking across mm. it repetitively over time, sure. then then it will stop it growing there. Okay. It will find somewhere nicer. Okay. So can you explain to us what lichen, bryophyte, hornwort are? Yeah, so there's a lot of words that you can use to describe the same thing. So um, non-vascular plants is the, just the big umbrella name for the four groups. Uh, liverworts, they can look like two different things. There are thallus liverworts, which are like the green mats that can cover ground. Or you can get leafy liverworts, which look a lot like mosses. More, uh, They look like they've got little leaves. Most of them are green. They look a bit more fuzzy looking. And then lichens are a whole other creature. They are a symbiotic relationship between a fungus and a photobiont, so something that photosynthesizes. It's usually an algae uh, or a cyanobacteria. Um, and hormones, forgot hormones. They're often forgotten, even by me. <laughs> <laughs> so they look like thallus liverworts, but their reproductive part looks like a little horn. Uh, so they look like the thallus liverworts when they're not fertile, but if uh-huh. they are fertile, they'll just be covered in horns, which are really cool. That is very cool. <laughs> so you can tell when they're fertile. Yeah. And New Zealand's really rich in lichens, isn't it? We do have a huge diversity of lichens. We have over 2,000 species. And and lichen are an amazing thing, right? Didn't they survive in space once? They did. They have been taken up into space, opened up into the atmosphere up there, and then brought back to Earth 
opened up again and they just continue on their merry way. They can survive. And moths are pretty special too, aren't they? Mosses, one cool thing about them is that they've been known to survive under glaciers for thousands of years. For example, in Antarctica, uh, a glacier retreated and there was moss underneath it and it was alive. It, kept, it, it started to grow. So this has been under a glacier since the last ice age, tens of thousands of years. And it was just sort of dormant. Or yeah, just wow. frozen in time. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so can you tell me a bit about the work that you do within the monitoring and information systems team here at DOC? Yes. So we have field team members who over summer go out to a network of plots that are scattered across public conservation land in New Zealand. And they do all sorts of measurements on the plot, measure tree diameters, tree heights, all the species, vascular plant species, pest monitoring, bird monitoring, so much monitoring. And they also collect non-vascular plants and send them to me. So some people think that I must have a very glamorous job. They imagine me in a forest, like with all of these plants. That's but where I've in got reality, you in my head, yeah. <laughs> I'm in a little office with a couple of microscopes. It's surrounded in boxes and dry plants. <laughs> so it's not so glamorous. <laughs> that sounds really glamorous to me. Um, and I've heard that also, while you're in the little office with your boxes, that you disappear into a cupboard with a UV light and some oh, lichens. Are you having a dance party? What's what's going on in there? I used to use the toilet because it was the darkest room in the office. <laughs> but then we found the storage cupboard and that was a much better option. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. So I've got this little UV light and some lichens reflect under UV light and that can help me identify what the species is. And so sometimes I'll put my little UV protective goggles on and go into this little cupboard and nobody's ever really asked what I do in there. <laughs> so, I don't know what they think I'm doing, but I, I'm, I'm identifying like it's, it's, it's a legitimate reason. And now we've told everyone. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I should be congratulating you because you've just discovered a new plant. Is that right? Yes. Tell me I'm about that. I'm very excited about it. Uh, so we haven't published it yet, uh, but myself and a colleague have discovered a new species of liverwort. And we both independently found it. I didn't physically find it. It, was, it came through in one of the collections. So one of the team members had found it in the field and they sent it to me. And I recognised it as being totally different to what the rest of the related species were. So I know which genus it belongs to. Um, Stolony Victor. <laughs> but, which sounds like a wizard spell, yeah, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, but it, w- it was covered in little spines, and so it was completely different to any other species within that genus. So we've written this paper, we're waiting on some DNA results from Finland, and once they come back, we can publish, and then everyone can know about it. <laughs> and that was me with David Glenny, who works at Lancare Research. Fantastic. Shout out David Glenny. <laughs> and did you get to call it something? Yeah, I got, we got to choose the species name, which was really difficult. I, it's called Stolonivector echioides, and echioides is, um, comes from, you know, echidna um, spines, oh, echinae, that, yeah. that kind of thing. So it has to have a meaningful reason for why you choose the name, and that's what we went for. Not froglia, which is a m- missed no, opportunity, Yeah, Well, it's really frowned upon to name something after yourself. <laughs> it's probably going to be the last thing I name if I name it froglia. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask about threatened non-vascular plants. So data-deficient species is a real concern, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, for all groups, but 
in particular for lichens. Over half of our lichen species are listed as data deficient. So over a thousand wow. species. My gosh. So the work that you do, it must really make a difference with that. It, it has done, which is really cool. So data deficient really means that we don't know enough about it to uh, say if it is threatened, if it's not threatened, mm-hmm. what's threatening it. We just we don't know anything except that it exists. And so with this monitoring program, we've got a whole lot of new records coming in, a lot of new identifications, and that data is able to feed into the threat listing process and we have been able to remove some of these data-deficient species and actually assign them a threat classification. Right. And then sometimes we get a sense that this is actually quite naturally uncommon. Um, so it is threatened, but it's for natural reasons. Uh, so we're actually learning a lot about these species through this process. That's fantastic. What about the one that you discovered is that? Do you know in this, how many there are? This has We've found it in two places. So mm-hmm. we found it uh, in the Copeland Valley mm-hmm. and David Glennie found it on Stewart Island. Um, that's all we know about it. Um, but what's interesting about this genus is that it's there are only six species in this genus and four of them are only found in New Zealand. Uh, one is found in New Zealand and Australia and the other is only found on a little island, Heard Island, which is an Australian island. So it's got a really interesting distribution worldwide. Yeah. Uh, so at the moment, it's going to be data deficient. Mm-hmm. We have two records. We just It's tiny. It's one millimeter wide. Uh, so people obviously aren't looking for it. Um, mm. We were lucky that, that it was picked up in this monitoring program. Uh, but now we know a little bit more about the habitat that maybe when people go out to similar places, they might be able to look for it. And because we, we're not going to find anything out if people aren't looking. That's so true. And they'll be more aware to look for it. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. I love the term green blindness. Can you explain that phrase? Yes. So this is a term that I heard at a recent uh, conservation network conference, and I thought it just applied to non-vascular plants perfectly. Green blindness is that sensation when you're walking through a forest and everything looks the same. You don't really take it in. It's sort of like a green veil is covering everything and I'm guilty of doing this in the past. When I was growing up, I would go for walks in the bush and I everything would just be a tree. I'd focus on mm. the track, I'd focus on my breathing, and <laughs> I wouldn't really notice anything that was around me. Mm. And once I start to, to learn more and to look, then, then I have a completely new experience when I'm walking through the bush now knowing what I'm surrounded in, what these plants are. So you've taken your green blindness off. Yes, I've Almost. lifted the veil. Lifted the veil. <laughs> I like that one. So how do you get people to lift the veil themselves to start noticing things around them? Cool. Good question. One of my favorite ways of doing that is to find a really mossy rock or log and ask people to look at it and tell me how many different species they see on it. And this includes mosses, liverworts, lichens, hornworts, whatever's on the rock slash log. And people just sort of look at it, they don't really know, and then they get all up in it. They start to look at different colours, textures and shapes, uh, and then they realise that actually there's so much living in this one tiny little area, Uh, and it's really fun watching people discover that. And seeing that there aren't just a couple of species. Mm -hmm. Everyone is always surprised. That there are more? That there are more, yeah, there there are lots. Fantastic. 
So apart from hiding in the toilet with lichen, <coughs> what's been your weirdest day at work? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was this one time that <laughs> I was visiting a colleague and somebody from a local museum brought in a human skull. And this skull had a liverwort growing on the side of it. And he wanted us to identify <laughs> the liverwort. Um, the skull was dated for, to be from the 1800s. And so I don't know how long the liverwort had been growing on it. But we identified it. And it's an undescribed species. Uh, but it, we have known about it for a while. No one, just no one's published the information yet. Um, but it's a liverwort that usually is found on limestone and other calcareous substrates. And so it sort of makes sense that it's growing on human bones, right? Uh, yeah, it does. So do we know where that skull came from? Uh, a walker found it out in the forest. And then once it was dated to 1800s and then brought into us to identify, identified the liverwort and then handed it back um, to the appropriate people. That is so interesting. What would you say is the best part of your job? What's what you love? Uh, I think the best part of my job is the fact that I get to work sometimes on my own, sometimes with within a team. Um, I get to work in an office and then I get to go out into the field. I get to work with plants that I find really interesting. I get to learn so much every day uh, and I get to connect with all these people from different organisations, people who have similar interests, and then I get to pass on everything that I've learnt to others. So it's a little bit cheesy, but I think that I sort of have the best of every world in You've my job. You've got so much variety. <laughs> so That's much amazing. variety. Um, what would you say is the biggest challenge in your field right now? The biggest challenge would be the lack of taxonomic research and literature out there. Um that there's, there are just huge gaps in knowledge and not very many people filling those gaps. So progress is slow and that can be a real challenge when you're trying to identify species. Of course, because there are so many data deficient mm -hmm. things. You're going, I want more about this. I know. And take, mm. for example, the liverwort that was on the skull, that people know about it. I don't know how many years they've known about it, but nobody has published the information because there aren't enough people out there with enough time to publish these things. Or dedicated to exactly. liverworts and lichen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that can just place so much limitation on, on ecological work in this area. What's something about your work that you wish everyone knew? Uh, I wish that everybody knew and appreciated the fact that the tallest moss in the world lives in New Zealand. Uh, it can grow up to 70 centimetres tall. It looks a little bit like a miniature pine tree. Uh, so oh. don't pull it out if you're weeding. But <laughs> Don't pull it out. Don't yeah. use it for your Christmas tree. It sounds pretty yeah. sweet, though. It's really cool. So has there been a, I mean, you've discovered your own plant. Has there been a most satisfying experience professionally? <laughs> yeah, I guess discovering a plant was quite satisfying. But <laughs> in other ways, once... I held a workshop for a room full of vascular plant botanists and I wanted to teach them all about the non-vascular plant world. So it was three hours long and they really delved into it. They, I created a workbook full of all these tasks that they could do. They were pulling apart plants, looking at them under a microscope, dissecting them, 
all sorts of things. And by the end of it, everybody was really enthusiastic about non-vascular plants. It was just really satisfying seeing everybody come in with a little bit of scepticism about like why are these things so important. But then they left thinking, whoa, this is a whole other world I never had eyes into. And and I, that was really satisfying. And you did that. I did that. That's, yeah. that's a bit cool. And then personally, on a personal note, I overheard one of the organisers of the whole conference say, that's how you run a workshop. <gasps> and that made me feel really good. <laughs> Did you pay them to do it? That's fantastic. <laughs> um, have you had sort of a toughest day at work? Yeah. Um, I went on a field trip with one of the monitoring teams and we were at this plot that was right in the middle of a swamp in Haast and it was such a tough day because we spent the whole day wading through swampy water. I wanted to climb across all of the trees that had fallen down across the plot so that I didn't have to get my feet wet. <laughs> but then but then I would have had to crush all of the mosses and the lichens on oh. the log. So, look, I chose to get my feet wet that day. Uh, for the nature. <laughs> for the nature. For. Yeah, but by the end of the day, I didn't realise straight away it was happening, but I obtained 89 itchy bites from mosquitoes all over my body. I counted them all because I had, I like, I had like calamine you know? lotion or something <laughs> spotted all over my body, so... Oh, my 89 gosh. And you bites. got your feet wet. And I got my feet wet. Yeah, I know. Here's Tough to day. You, mosses and lichen. Yeah. But there were a lot of plants on that plot, um, 78 species of non-vascular plants within a 20 by 20 metre plot. So it's really cool. That's huge. That's yeah. a huge discovery and mm-hmm. worth it in the end. Uh, worth it in the end. Once the yeah. bites had gone down. Actually, perhaps. it was more than the vascular plant species on that plot. There were 70 vascular plant species and 78 non-vascular plant species Living so together in harmony. Mm. <laughs> That's what I wanted to ask before. You um, do do lichen level in harmony together, like on on a rock. Do they try steal each other's algae? I don't know. Sometimes there are like turf wars between <laughs> lichens. They have be so lichens have a, ho- a whole lot of chemistry to them. They've got they're riddled with chemistry. <laughs> and, <laughs> And sometimes their chemistry really doesn't match. And so sometimes you can look at a rock or some, anything and a lichen might have a little rim, a black rim surrounding it. Mm-hmm. And it must happen incredibly slow, but it's like a slow motion war for territory. And the secretions that occur around the lichen will prevent another one from growing over it or taking its turf, essentially. So it's putting up a fence in its backyard. Mm-hmm. A fence that moves along. Over. Like, what is it called in a battlefield when you're yeah. moving forward? That's the imagery I've got going on yeah, in my head. Yeah, it's, it's in my head. It's from Lord of the Rings mainly, but I don't know what <laughs> <Yes>. it's called. <laughs> um, do you have a favourite work story? Hmm... My favourite work story, one that we haven't even talked about so far, (laughs) would maybe it was sort of cool. One day I was camping with the field teams again when I was at a plot. We were camping on top of a mountain and it was getting quite late in the season, so it was quite cold. Um, And when I woke up in the morning, I went to brush my teeth, but my toothpaste was frozen because it was so cold. And then we had to crack through ice on a mountain tarn to get water for the day. So I just sort of, this is, that was really cool. They, that was not my dark toilet office. Yeah. You that's know, quite very a very different atmosphere. 
But then do you feel like living in the wild? That would be yeah, pretty cool. Totally. Um, it sounds like you've had so many incredible experiences out in the fields doing the things that you love. But on a more serious note, have you noticed that climate change is affecting your work? At the moment, it doesn't affect my work because samples are being collected no matter what the climate is and they are coming in and I am identifying them. But at the moment, we're very much in the stage of creating an inventory of what we have and where it's growing. Uh, the next step will be to remeasure, re-identify, and then we can start to identify trends um, occurring, may or may not be occurring. So mm-hmm. really it's just this big unknown at the moment, but it's going to be so important going, mm. going ahead in the future. Uh, but at this stage not really affecting work, but just this huge unknown. Yeah, Uh, totally unpredictable. Yeah, we don't know how the plants are going to react to changing temperatures. Sure. Um, Yeah. With with things like moss that has survived under a glacier, it can survive very harsh conditions, Mm -hmm. can't it? Yes, but because the climate is warming, it's Mm -hmm. going to be the complete opposite effect. Sure. And there's a limit to what plants can mm-hmm. withstand in terms of desiccation. Right. Some are more adept at tolerating these kinds of conditions. So, for example, mosses and lichens that you can find around urban environments, they might even be on your car, just on the pavement. Oh, yeah. um, in urban environments that are quite polluted, um, probably quite hot because of all the concrete. So oh, yeah. they do have these abilities to adapt, um, but I just don't know enough about all yeah. of the plants to know how they're going to react. It doesn't sound like anyone does no. yet, but you're finding out. And and can't lichen be um, a, pol- a pollutant notifier, can't they? Yeah, they're... Um, People can call them bioindicators. That's, That's the word. That's the word. <laughs> yeah, so they can indicate air quality or changes in air quality. Uh, they're, so they're, they're quite sensitive to what is in the air around them. They don't have the ability to just absorb the good air and reject any pollutants, so they just take in whatever is around them, mm-hmm. and if that air is too polluted, then they will die. Uh, And some lichens are much more tolerant to those kinds of pollutants, and so they're going to be the ones that are going to survive. So if you look at species assemblages in an area, that can tell you a lot about the quality of air um, and which which species are living there might indicate if it's fresh air or polluted air. Wow, that's such a a key species for Mm -hmm. that. That's pretty cool. Very cool. Um, if, if people are interested in learning and studying bryophytes and lichen, mm-hmm. what can people do at home? Um, one of the most accessible ways to start learning is to use iNaturalist. Oh, I don't know how many people are familiar with that, but it's a really great platform to put photos up online or look at other people's photos. And a lot of people around the country and around the world will look at those photos as well and maybe identify them for you or um, or provide details about them in the comment section. And this is just a really great way for people to look around them, see what's growing, take photos, put it up, learn a little bit. Um, 
and there lift we go. the veil. Lift, lift the veil. <laughs> You're right. Oh, that's fantastic. I've told my mum about iNaturalist and she thought, I'm not a scientist, Erica. I can't, you know, oh. go on iNaturalist. I was like, mum, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. <laughs> yeah. So there's another thing that people can do at home and this is for the people who are involved more in restoration projects mm-hmm. uh, or maybe they want to create a planting on their property um, and that's just to consider non-vascular plants as part of the ecosystem that they want to create Um, and this could be thought of as which plants you're introducing, um, which plants should be there Uh, but also sometimes there are invasive plant species that maybe you're introducing that you shouldn't be introducing and this is in particular for one of the thallus liverworts that gardeners hate nurseries hate they just spread throughout nurseries and then if people are are ordering plants from outside their region and then they bring them to their plantation plant plant in their area they are introducing yeah and and speeding up that invasive species distribution so that's something to think about as well just watch what you're bringing in, if you want to bring it in or not. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give us an example of the invasive? Yeah, so um, there there is one big one that's uh, Lunularia, and that is a thallus liverwort. So it's green, it's matted, and if you look at it um, and it's fertile, it has these little moon shaped cups on the thallus, and that com- that's the loon part of its genus, right? Like oh, from Latin. Yeah, um, yeah. So if you look at it and you see your little moon shaped cups, that's uh-huh. Lunularia. There's another thallus liverwort, Marcantia, and those those little cups are full circle cups, not the half moon. But they're both invasive. Both invasive. Mm. We don't like them. Mm. Okay. We only like them where they're supposed to be. Yes. <laughs> in the right area. Yeah. Fantastic. Everything in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great reminder to sort of decode the green and look at smaller species that are so often overtaken by like the grandeur of a forest. It's been fantastic having you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Erica. Anytime. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now, never miss an episode.